Welcome back to the Club Excite podcast. Today's podcast is all about executive functioning skills and its impact on learning with our guest speaker, Meredith Gleason of Empower Child Learning. Ooh, it's going to be a good one. The Club Excite podcast is a podcast connecting parents and professionals with the resources and ideas that they need to help their students reach their highest potential. Club Excite is based locally out of San Diego, California, and offers innovative education solutions to families and students both in person and virtually all over the world. Being leaders in the field of innovative education, Club Excite strives to provide multidisciplinary solutions for students struggling academically, socially, emotionally, and behaviorally. Club Excite offers tutoring, coaching, and licensed professional therapy in both group and one-to-one settings. If after listening to this podcast, you have any questions about the Types of services that are offered and how these services could potentially benefit your student, feel free to find Club Excite on social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, or by visiting our website at clubexcite.com, C-L-U-B-X-C-I-T-E.com. Once again, today's podcast is all about executive functioning and its impact on learning with our guest speaker, Meredith Gleason. Awesome, awesome. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. It looks like people are coming in. Feel free to, with regards to cameras or microphones, please mute microphones, but with cameras, feel free to have them on or off. It is up to you. And welcome, everyone, as we're trickling in. We'll give people, you know, a minute here to get situated. And I, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for our talk today. Oh my goodness gracious. Uh, well, hello. Well, let's let's jump in a little bit. Hi, Meredith. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks, David. I'm really excited to be here and to talk with everyone tonight about executive functioning, a topic that I'm passionate about in um, you know my own kind of nerdy way. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm so excited for. Uh, well, I don't want to give too much of our talk away, but I am. I'm so excited to pick your brain and just really just dive into this topic. I think it's such. A valuable topic. So ah, I'm so excited. So before we go too far into it, just for everyone in the audience, if at any point, uh, so at the end of our Zoom, we'll have a time for, for questions if anyone has any questions. Uh, but feel free, even as we're going through, to just put questions in the chat box. Um, and we'll, you know, if we, if we get to them in the moment, we'll talk to them, or at the very least, we'll address them at the very end. So feel free to ask questions. Uh, well, awesome. So let's, oh, we have some more people coming in. I'm so excited. But yeah, let's jump right on into it here. Okay. So I, we are here today talking with Meredith Gleason. Hello. <laughs> so Meredith, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you're coming from, and just, yeah, just a little bit about you? Absolutely. Uh, so my name, like you said, David, is Meredith Gleason, <laughs> and I um, am the owner of Empower Child Learning, um, and that's the company I run where um, I practice as what's called a licensed educational psychologist. The acronym, because we always have acronyms in education, is an LEP. So a licensed educational psychologist, and I love what I do. I've been in education for about 13 years. Uh, I was a teacher before I moved into becoming a psychologist. I taught middle school and high school, and so I got to know that population very well. Um, have a have a deep um, love for middle school teachers. <laughs> Um, and their bravery. Um, I'm also a parent myself. Um, I have a four-year-old and another one on the way. Um, so I, you know, have 
a real deep empathy and compassion for parents, um, as well as for educators having been a teacher, um, you know, really being thoughtful with what, how I recommend schools and parents and, you know, home and school communicate and work together because I've, I've been in those roles and know the energy that both sides put into the, to making a child thrive. Um, and so what I really um, enjoy about my job and in my practice is uh, I do assessments for students. So I see how they learn and I look at how their brain thinks and I put that together in a profile of their strengths and their weaknesses and really get in there to help families understand and the child understand how they learn, um, which is why it's called Empower Child Learning. I really wanna empower families and help them um, take ownership of, of their child, how they learn, and then bring that, being able to bring that information to the school to work as a team um, and help that child really be able to self-advocate and, and um, know their learning profile so that they can, can thrive in school because that's what we all want for our kids. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so great. I love hearing about all of the work that you do. It's just my favorite thing ever. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, let's see. Let's go. So my first question for you is, and so today's talk and today's topic is all about, like, like we've already said, it's about executive functioning and its impact on learning. So I guess maybe I want to start a little bit from square one. Can you tell us about what is executive functioning and how, and I guess just a little bit about what you were just talking about, like what is executive functioning and how does it affect a student's day-to-day -day life? It's a great question. So executive functioning is um, an important part of our brain. It's actually in the front of our brain. Um, so the way I usually describe it to, um, to families is that if our brain was um, an orchestra, it would be the conductor of our brain. It's the front of our brain. It's telling the rest of our brain what to do. It's helping us plan, remember information. It's helping us problem solve. It's helping us um, organize our thoughts and our belongings and be flexible enough to move from one thing to the next and, and be aware of what we're doing compared to what others are doing. Lots of different things. It's a very important part of our brain. Um, and executive functioning can affect our day in a, in a lot of ways because if our executive functioning isn't working um, the way we need it to, we might have difficulty um, organizing our materials. Um, we might have difficulty remembering directions someone tells us or in what we're supposed to do next in our day. We may have difficulty um, planning. We may not know how to start something, how to complete it, how to work through it. And this can be at home and at school, which is why I, I love talking about executive functioning because it's, it's, it's fluid. It affects a lot of our days and a lot of our environments. It can affect the way we play sports, the way we socialize. Um, and so, you know, another part of executive functioning that sometimes people don't think about is emotional control as well. Um, so emotional control is that ability to understand that, um, to, to take our emotions and be able to adjust them to a scenario in a way that's expected. Um, and so if we don't have emotional control, we may kind of be one of those people who goes from zero to 60, you know, where all of a sudden they seem fine and then they're very angry um, or they may have a, a large reaction to a small problem. Um, and, and sometimes people are kind of unsure how to act around them because they're not sure how they're going to, you know, to portray a certain situation. And that's part of executive functioning too. Um, and so there's a lot of ways that it can affect our day at school and at home if we're not able to navigate these different situations with the tools we need in that front part of our brain. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love, oh my gosh, my favorite thing that you just said, I love that image of executive functioning as a conductor leading like all the different parts of the brain. One, especially what you just said, I think it's really easy sometimes for, or maybe not, maybe easy isn't the right word, natural for us to be able to picture like executive functioning, like those skills, like with regards to like organization, prioritization. But I think it's so, that piece you just talked about with emotional regulation is so important. And that sometimes I feel like doesn't maybe get the airtime that it's, it needs. So that's, ah, yes. Ah. Really important. And, um, you know, unless we feel regulated emotionally, it's hard to learn. So if you're mm-hmm. coming in emotionally dysregulated, um, it's going to be hard for you to go into a classroom and learn. It's going to be hard for you to go to work and learn, um, you know, and we all experience things that can make us emotional. And then it's kind of what our choices or actions are that really um, can make or break how people view what we do. And um, a lot of times with children that have executive functioning deficits, that emotional control is really hard um, for them to manage. And, you know, they're not doing it to be like rude or a bad kid. And I think they get characterized that way. And it's really a lack of of the development of that front part of their brain. Um, It's the youngest part of our brain. So it's, it starts developing at age five, but doesn't fully develop till about age 25 to 30. Um, so if you, you know, if you think about it, it's the youngest part of our brain. And then if a child has difficulty with executive functioning, uh, you know, we got We got to really come and meet them where they're at and support them in the environment they're in, because it's going to be hard for them to meet expectations sometimes. Yes. Meeting them where they're at. I, that's, I mean, that right there, like, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, and sort of just like on that, like, so we're talking about, so you as a licensed psychologist, you uh, conduct assessments and we're talking about executive functioning. So when you are assessing a student, what do you look for? What do you look for in students when you're assessing for executive functioning deficits? That's a great question. Um, So part of what I do as a licensed educational psychologist is I do diagnose So I can diagnose like ADHD, um, anxiety, autism, dyslexia, things like that that's related to education. Um, And while executive functioning isn't a disorder that's in um, what we call like the DSM, which is like the diagnostic manual that clinicians Mm. use to diagnose, um, there are evidence, there can be evidence of executive functioning deficits. Mm. It can be related to different disorders like um, autism or ADHD, which is most commonly associated with executive functioning deficits or learning disability. But um, when I am assessing specifically for executive functioning, I'm looking at a few different areas. I'm looking at um, how a child can remember information. Memory is a powerful part of executive functioning. I'm looking at how they can take information, hold on to it, um, manipulate it, and then give the information I'm asking for. So like an example would be asking a child to tell me, I say numbers and I tell, ask them to tell me the numbers backwards. Mm -hmm. So they're holding on information, manipulating it. And then, um, the output is them giving the information in the way I requested. And that can be affected by executive functioning. Um, I look at their ability to plan their ability to process information efficiently. Um, so I'm like timing them for some of the tasks that I do. And, um, a lot of the a lot of the assessment is one-to-one in a standardized um, setting because I use assessments that are based on uh, certain ways, standardized ways to deliver the information, score it, and then look at how do they compare to other children their age around the country. Mm. Um, 
And so part of the assessment is one-to-one. Um, and right now that looks a little interesting because um, with um, COVID and, and the restrictions, um, the assessment that I give one-to-one is meant to be done in person and not on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, my company, we, I'm developing um, guidelines that match the CDC, CDC's recommendations and, and I'm looking to do those in-person assessments um, end of June, early July, um, so that with appropriate PPE and precautions um, to make everyone feel safe. Um, that's one part. Uh, and it's a part I really enjoy because I interview the student, I get to know them, and um, I also learn about how their brain works. Um, another area I do to look at executive functioning is I give parents and teachers, and if the students of age, there's a certain age level requirement, I give them these surveys that are often called rating scales. And rating scales are really helpful because it gives different perspectives of how the child is in different environments. So um, I, it um, is a survey that parents, teachers, or a student takes, and they're kind of, they're given an example of an item, and then they say, does this happen never, sometimes, or often? So the, the item might say, um, loses focus, or doesn't think before doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the parent or whoever's taking the survey would rate it, And then it takes all that information and it gives me scores in the area. So if I know if it's a problem or not a problem for a child. Mm. Um, So I take the in-person assessment, the rating scales. Um, If it's necessary, I do observations of the child in the school setting. That obviously is something that's not readily available right now. (laughs) (laughs) But something I do do and looking at how how are they able to manage tasks, move from one thing to another, How are they on task compared to their peers? How are they completing work compared to their peers? Are they following directions? I take data um, and do interviews with people that work with the child. And then I put that all together. And what's really great, what comes out of it is the child's learning profile with executive functioning Mm. and how um, executive functioning areas of strength or areas of weakness might affect um, how they perform at home and how they perform at school. And that kind of drives the recommendations that I provide as well, um, which is really the most important part of the assessment is the, so what are we going to do about it? It's the yeah. recommendations and interventions that come from it. Um, so that was a long answer for executive functioning <laughs> assessment because it's, it's a very comprehensive assessment that I do, um, but it's such valuable information for, for parents, teachers, and for the student. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, and I, I think, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure I can just, you know, a handful of people in the Zoom meeting, either because their parents or because their other professionals have, you know, have sat in IEP meetings where with, with information like this being listed. And it's so, well, and just like what you just said, like that whole learning profile and the recommendations are so, are so important, you know, and I can say that as, you know, a little bit about my background, you know, I used to be a special ed teacher before coming to Club Excite. And, you know, a lot of times, like, those recommendations are so important, you know, and a lot of IEP teams, like, they, if, you know, like, if they stray from them, and then they wonder why things didn't work out, it's like, oh, but, you know, were we, you know, were we looking at the, you know, were we looking at the child and who they are and meeting where they are? Um, And sort of on that note, you know, with looking at, you know, and sort of, like, on the flip side of that, too, I, something that I always saw as, or not always, but often saw is parents who like it's almost like they're on information overload a little bit and they and they don't know which parts of you know they just don't know what to do with all this information so 
what, so when looking at psychoeducational reports, what, what conclusions should people draw from these, this type of information? So that's a great question. Um, so a psychoeducational report kind of looks at everything under the sun. Um, it's a little bit, it's a more comprehensive assessment than executive functioning assessments. Um, mm -hmm. It looks at academics, um, reading, writing, and math. It looks at a child's IQ, their cognitive abilities across the board, and the way their brain processes information. Um, and you're right, in an IEP meeting, there's a lot of information. There's these thick reports parents are given, and it's, you have like an hour to go through a your, you know, your whole child's report and plan, and it, it can be very overwhelming, like you said. Um, and sometimes there's a lot of acronyms thrown around, and it, it can just be um, an incredibly overwhelming experience for a parent. Um, and so I, I think that that's important that you recognize that. Um, you know, what I think, what I hope parents take away, and what I, what I sit down and really go through when I do psychoeducational assessments, because I do those as well, is I go through with parents, um, their child's learning profile and I really make sure that they connect the dots between how they process information and how that affects their academics. Mm -hmm. Because executive functioning, for example, can absolutely affect um, different parts of academics. And if we, we need to paint that picture that because of this, um, the, the, the cause and effect relationship is this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, executive functioning can affect, you know, reading comprehension, it can affect writing, it can affect math problem solving, it can even affect our listening comprehension, oral expression. So there's, you know, I, what I hope parents walk away with with the report is that their child's, the way their child learns and the way they're performing academically, it's clear. Those connections, mm. those themes are, are made um, and established. Mm. As an assessor, I always look, what are themes? Themes are the things that tell us the story, right? When we're taught to read, we are taught to look for themes because that's the the meaning to take away. So the meaning to take away from this report, if it was a story, is what's the theme here about this child? Because you really are telling a story with an insane amount of data and <laughs> information, but you really are painting a picture for a, a family and for an IEP team. How are you gonna support this child and what does it mean on paper? How does that translate to what you do every day? Yeah. And that's what I really hope parents walk away from, from an assessment understanding. and much easier said than done. Um, but it's one of my favorite parts of my job is, is breaking it down and, and making it meaningful because the worst, you know, experience from an assessment is you walk away and you're like, wait, does my child have a learning disability? Do they have ADHD? I don't really know. You know, that's, that's, I wouldn't want that. And I've, I've worked with families that have felt that way from other assessments. And, and, you know, I want to, to break it down and demystify what it means. Um, and those results mean and make it come alive and be meaningful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. One, well, it, it all comes back to, you said something like that at all, it, for me, it all clicks and connects to something you said at the very beginning of our talk with when children may be doing these things and having these experiences and they're not do. I mean, and, and they're not doing it on purpose. They aren't consciously trying to be difficult or like that oral like listening comprehension oral expression all these things you know they really come together in the way the child experiences their learning in their life and it's it, absolutely like making sure parents and the whole team is understanding the direction and the learning profile and the recommendations and is it's just so important this is so vital to the child's success i Oh, I love hearing you talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I, I believe all behavior is communication. And so, you know, when a child's doing something that, you know, doesn't, 
isn't what we would expect them to do. They're communicating something's not working for them and mm-hmm. you know, kids behave if they can. Um, that's something that Ross Green said. He's a, he's a famous psychologist who's written many books about parenting and done classes. And, you know, um, he, you know, he talks about how if kids can follow the expectation, they will. Mm-hmm. And when they can't, and they're showing us behavior that's maybe undesired or unwanted, that's their way of communicating. I need help. Yeah. Um, it doesn't always look as pretty as I need help in saying that because <laughs> um, life doesn't work that way. But um, they're letting us know that that something isn't right for them. And, um, you know, it's our job as the adults and the people who care about these children to, to figure out what it is that they're trying to communicate and give them tools to communicate in a way that makes them feel successful and makes others want to be around them. Because that's, you know, all we want for our kids is for them to feel accepted and feel happy and feel successful. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, you hear that I actually had never heard that quote before. Um, children will behave when they can, if they can, they'll follow the expectation when they can. That I mean, that like, my, that's technically a belief I already had, but thinking about it in those terms, like, is mind bending. I well, and it's so important. I oh my gosh. Well, and you know, I I I know other people are probably doing the same thing I am. You know, hearing, listening to these ideas and listening to these these topics. It's you know, I'm thinking of you know, all the different students I've ever worked with, you know, it's like, oh, that kind of reminds me of that student, that kind of reminds me of that student, or maybe parents are here, and they're thinking like, oh, that kind of reminds me of my child. So what, so for people, <clears throat> oh, pardon me, so for parents and professionals who don't necessarily specialize in executive functioning, what should they know? What are, what are just very important things for people to know about executive functioning? That's a great question. Um, so, you know, one thing that it is a way in something in our brain and the way our brain processes information that um, can have a long-term impact. It's not something that's a quick fix, um, but there is a lot of research about neuroplasticity in the brain and about growth mindset and you know being able to learn strategies that actually can change the way our brain thinks. So even though a child may have an executive functioning deficit or deficits, they can absolutely learn strategies um, to help them. And so um, you know, with, with parents, I know that sometimes you just feel frustrated, uh, you know, as I do with my four-year-old. Um, sometimes you feel like you're, you know, you're a broken record and you're trying the same thing and it just, it doesn't, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, right? So, um, you know, I think there's lots of strategies that we can model for, for our children and, and, and show them and teach them um, to help them learn to navigate um, their executive functioning deficits. There's a, another famous psychologist, Jack Nagaliri, who is kind of a, an executive functioning guru in the field. Um, he's developed a test on executive functioning that I use. He is very knowledgeable. And he did a lot of research with making strategies work. Because a lot of times we can identify weaknesses, but you're like, how do you, how do you make this change? How do you get this yeah. strategy to, to be something a child uses all the time? And so what he found is that if you are, um, if you are, uh, purposeful and intentional with your strategies. And then you are also um, transparent and you let the kid know, I'm teaching you this to help you with this. That, that actually help, shows with research that the child will adopt those strategies and make and improve in whatever area they're working on. Um, so I think we really have to, as educators and parents, have to pull back the curtain and really um, look at you know, I don't want to throw 20 interventions at a kid at once because I'm not going to know which one worked and I'm probably going to overwhelm the child. And so I want to pick a couple at a time, 
really work on those. And I want to bring the kid into the conversation. They need to know why they're working on what they're working on and when to use it. Um, you know, if, if, you know, if I'm going to teach somebody how to drive, I'm going to teach them why they have to brake, why they have to turn, why they have to push the gas, why they have to follow stoplights and stop signs. So I want to give the same opportunity to kids when I'm teaching an executive functioning strategies. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. I, I, well, and it all for me, I heard somebody say once um, that education isn't something you do to people. It's, it's something you do with people. 100%. So yeah, like, so having that intentionality and having that directness uh, and that clarity with children, and it makes sense. It makes sense to me. Like if children know what's happening, they know how to, they know how to absorb that information. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. <laughs> no, you go. <laughs> I was going to say, I think we have the opportunity too to, to empower them and give them knowledge of, you know, I've noticed that you, you know, you have difficulty with planning or attention here. Can I show you something that might help? Let's try this and see if this works. Cause I think, you know, when we try to, you know, shelter our children from information or hide them from it, cause we think that maybe they're too young to know they have executive functioning deficits or ADHD or autism or whatever it is, you know, they make their own assumptions and that's where we get into trouble with self-esteem. They, they mm. think you know, nobody likes me or, um, I'm dumb or I, I can't do this. And, and when you have those negative thoughts that start, it's really hard to undo them. Mm. And it's really hard to come back and get into a healthy level of self-esteem. So if you, if you, if you give the information from the beginning and you know, this is how you learn, these are things you have difficulty with, but here's strategies we're going to help you with and you can name it, then you can tame it. You can, you can help them, um, yeah. which I think is so powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a quick question in the chat box that I want to plug out here. And the question is, um, so it's asking about the doctor's name again that you, you shared about earlier. Uh, Jack blank. Mm. It's N-A-G, let me, um, L-I-E-R-I. Awesome. This is the one that researched about the intentional and transparent strategies for executive functioning. He, you'll find, if you Google him, you'll find a lot of information about him. <laughs> awesome. 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 <clears throat> oh, pardon me. Well, perfect. All right. Let's so on. So based on what we just talked about and all of this idea of just being um, very intentional about and very clear about the strategies we're doing, what, uh, what, would you recommend, so sort of, I always like to think of in terms of, you know, if we, if we were going to turn around today, you know, if there was, like, and work with a child right away, you know, what are things that parents could try today, like some concrete broad brush strategies that are just in general good to try? Absolutely. No, I think that that's important. Um, and I think, what I always say to parents is don't try too many things at once. I would pick two or three strategies. I'll talk about a couple different ones, but one of the things that's not even, it is a strategy, but it's also kind of just an approach to consider. Um, we have so much verbal overload in our world um, and children with executive functioning often have memory deficits, meaning they can't hold a lot of information at once. And as adults, we're so um, articulate in, a in most of our day that we can give directions that often turn into sentences or paragraphs. And for a child, um, that can be very overwhelming. And when children are overwhelmed and don't know what to do, sometimes that's when we see emotional control um, be compromised. And so um, one thing I always talk to parents about, if you're giving too much verbal direction, 
that can cause your child frustration or it can cause them to not remember what you said. Mm. So you really want to limit your directions, keep them short and concise. Um, some directions can be shortened down to two to three words. Um, and you want to use visuals, visual tools. So what I mean by visual tools is because our, so much of our world is verbal and if a child has a hard time remembering things, the average adult remembers four to seven things. The average child might remember close to that, but a child with an executive functioning deficit may remember one or two things if you're lucky. Um, so we want to consider that. And so what a way that you can give them that information without repeating it over and over and over and feeling like that broken record is to give it in visual form. And so that can be through like a checklist. It can be through pictures, depending on the age of your child. It can be through, um, there's a lot of different ways to make it match your child's developmental level. Um, when I've worked with preschool age kids, we've used um, pictures or icons that represent certain things with older kids. It might be a video of them doing what they need to do and they watch it so they can do it on their own or they create their own checklist. Um, getting the children's buy-in or students buy-in is so important too. And how do you want to develop this visual to help you get ready in the morning so I don't have to remind you 900 times to brush your teeth? Or, you know, how can we develop an after-school schedule that you can look at on your own and check off? Um, you know, using a, a theme like my son right now is really into Paw Patrol. So his bedtime, his bedtime schedule, he has a visual schedule. He's almost four and it's Paw Patrol themed and he earns charts or stickers for, for following his schedule and that equates to a reward. So um, I think, the, and that creates a, um, uh, a stronger sense of independence too. It eliminates us than the nagging. Um, and that can be used in the classroom too, checklists, um, visual schedules, um, you know, having a sticker system or what we call a token economy to help a child earn rewards. Um, I think we eliminate the verbal piece which can cause children to be frustrated and then give them a visual, we're actually increasing their independence because now they can do what we're asking without us having to be over their shoulder, constantly prompting them for the next thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and it's, it's, it, it like makes everybody happy. The, sure. the child is happy because they're independent. We're yeah. happy because they're independent. Yeah. You know, and I really love how you connected that to you know, because I, I, I feel like I see, I feel like it's it's natural and easy for people to conceive using visuals with younger students, but to not, you know, it's almost like when kids reach a certain age, we just like throw out the book on, <laughs> you know, on what, on what works, you know, and yeah, older students need that too. They still need that visual out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think the way we communicate it too, I'm talking to them about their input in the visual support. So anytime you do an intervention or strategy, you want, like I said, to be transparent and introduce it to the child and have their buy-in and their, in, and, and their motivation to use it. Mm. And a way to do that is just to ask them questions about it, you know, asking them, you know, um, what do you think is hard for you? Can we make a plan for that? Um, what can we do that would help you? Um, if we were to create a schedule, what should be on that schedule? Mm. Should we do pictures of you following the schedule? Should we do a video? Um, should we use, you know, um, Roblox or, you know, Minecraft to incorporate different pictures to make you excited? Um, you know, should we have a reward at the end if you complete it? Um, students can be really honest and really have a good perspective of what they're doing and not doing. I've had children as young as three tell me, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're able to acknowledge that things aren't working or there's things that are hard for them and, and you know, the older they are, the more they can articulate that too. 
um, and it can be really powerful. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm kind of on, so kind of on the, on the train of, of, of families and parents and, you know, and really just being just mindfully aware of, of the needs of our students and our children. What are some early signs for executive functioning deficits that parents could maybe be looking out for? That's a great question. So, you know, you want to look at your child's day-to-day -day functioning and you want to look at how much, um, you know, kind of assistance are you providing them for tasks they should be able to do within their age range or their developmental abilities. Mm -hmm. um, if you, you know, if you aren't sure what their developmental abilities are, you can always, um, you know, Google and research like your child's age and where they should be in that proximity of development. Um, and also, you know, I don't always, I don't like to encourage comparing, but I don't want people to overgeneralize and, and compare, you know, their child to everybody. But if they have a sibling and, or if they have peers around them, you know, how, do, how does that look? How does that compare? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's part of what I do when I observe. How are they comparing to their peers? How are they functioning? Are you, you know, having to provide a lot of reminders to do a task that should be automatic, like brushing your teeth or getting dressed in the morning or um, gathering their belongings um, if they're school age to get ready to put in their backpack before they go to school? Um, is it, does it feel like you're constantly, you know, redirecting them or constantly picking up their belongings? Some children that have executive functioning deficits in organization they kind of leave a trail of their things. They leave like their sweatshirt and their water bottle and their binder. And you're like, they have something in their hand that's important. And you turn around and then, oh, it's gone. Um, so, you know, are, you just want to look at, is their day-to-day -day functioning dependent on your prompting and you providing mm -hmm. um, a lot of external supports that they developmentally should be able to do? Mm -hmm. um, you know, as a parent, of course, you're always going to be providing <laughs> supports because that's your role. But is it, you know, compared to where you're, how old your child is, is it appropriate? Is it something that, um, you know, is is beyond what's typical? Yeah. And that's sometimes hard to measure as parents. And that's why a lot of parents do seek out psychologists like myself to do assessments because they want to know, is this normal? Is this okay? Is this a deficit? Should I be providing intervention for this? Um, so that can answer questions too. If if kind of looking at that through that lens at home is, is a little bit muddy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, there's a question in the chat. There's a couple of questions in the chat and if we will definitely get them to them at the end, if we don't weave them in here, uh, mm -hmm. but there's one in the chat that's right on the money with what we're talking about right now. Um, and it's what are some of the best assessments for executive functioning? Okay, great question. So um, I have bits and pieces I pull from different assessments when I do executive functioning. One of my favorite tests when I'm looking at executive functioning, that's an in-person assessment, is called the Cognitive Assessment System. It's by Jack Nagaliri, who I mentioned earlier, my homie. Um, <laughs> he um, has a really good assessment that looks at planning, attention, memory, um, looks at um, problem solving, which is another part of executive functioning, and can even give and give scores in how that compares with students their age. So um, that's a test that I, I think is really valuable. Um, I give parts of a test um, called the Weschler Intelligence Scale for Children, and I give um, parts of the memory working memory piece because memory is very important and also something called processing speed, how quickly and accurately a child can do a task while ignoring things that might be distracting because that's really important when we're doing executive functioning. Um, that's kind of aligns with self-monitoring, planning, 
um, that efficiency piece that that aligns with um, where executive functioning might be difficult. Um, when I give rating scales, a couple of rating scales I like, there's um, one called the brief and um, it looks at executive functioning. It's a behavior rating scale um, that looks at all the different areas of executive functioning and breaks it down by different um, areas. It, talk, it looks at metacognition and emotional control, um, self-monitoring organization, things I talked about already very specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a couple other ones out there. There's one more by Jack Nagaliri, the Comprehensive Executive Functioning Inventory, which is another rating scale. Um, I don't want to keep giving a laundry list of assessments because it may be like too much, um, but those are some of my favorites to start. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those are some good ones. Well, in yeah. fact, actually, I realized that there was another question in the chat box that was sort of long. Those we just knocked two questions out right in a row, okay. so that was <laughs> that was perfect. Perfect. Awesome. Let's see. All right, so go. I sort of circling back to a little bit of what we were talking about uh, a minute ago is so when we're looking at so when we're looking at students with executive functioning and we're looking at the you know and I guess maybe sort of from the perspective of when when parents and teachers and staff and people are first noticing these struggles, what what would you say are some of the common mistakes that people make in response to executive functioning deficits? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think some of the mistakes we make is, um, you know, not taking time to really understand where the child specific deficits are. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can be generic in our interventions unintentionally, especially sometimes in the school setting when we're like taught, okay, when a child qualifies for special education, this is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, or when a child has ADHD, we're always going to do this. So, um, you know, and I, and I think being really specific and getting into what areas do they really need targeted intervention, because mm -hmm. the other problem with giving a generic intervention is there's usually like a laundry list of recommendations and we don't want to do too many things at once. Like I mentioned earlier, because if you do too many things, you're likely to overwhelm yourself and the child. And then if something improves, you're not going to know what it is that really worked. And so I think sometimes doing too many things at once can really kind of sabotage what is intended to be helpful. Um, and then, you know, um, kind of doing a one size fits all instead of individualized intervention is, is where we can kind of go, go unintentionally astray in our executive functioning intervention. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, yes, absolutely. I think you hit the nail right on the head there with, um, yeah, just with overly generic interventions. And well, and kind of maybe, well, and, and kind of on that note too, with, with trying to do too much at once, you know, it's, I almost like to think of it as like, you know, looking like, you know, going back to seventh grade, like the scientific method, thinking of it like a scientist, like, okay, I'm going to try this strategy and see if it works. But if you do seven things, you don't like, just like what you said, you don't know what worked and what didn't work. In fact, you yeah. might come to the conclusion that at all, that all of it did not work if you're trying to do too much. Right, <laughs> right. And you might rule out interventions that would have worked if they were done in isolation. Mm. Um, so sometimes when I've worked with um, schools or with parents, they're like, yeah, I did it. I did a token economy system or I did positive reinforcement and it didn't work. And then we kind of look at, well, how, would, how did you do it? And how is it implemented? And how, mm. how was this checklist used? Or how was a visual schedule used? How was... Um, you know, how are these strategies used to help the child? And then we realize, oh, wow, we actually didn't implement it the way maybe we should have, or we maybe implemented it in addition to all these other things. And now it got kind of buried. 
Mm. Um, and it was something that would have helped if done with, you know, fidelity and strategically. Mm. Um, and that's why, you know, Jack Nagalier talks so much about um, in, intention and transparency because um, the more we include those elements and, and, and really be specific in what we recommend, we can really see if it, if it is, if it yields the results we're looking for. Absolutely. Well, and I guess that's actually, oh, that's actually a great transition for my next question <laughs> is, is where, so when we're looking at, if when we're, you know, we're looking at a student, we're looking at the supports that they need. What are, where are some good places to start? Where are some, where, what strategies are just universally maybe like really good square ones if we don't know where to start? Yeah. Um, so uh, like I said before, reducing your, your verbal prompting is really important. Um, so finding ways to incorporate visual tools is key. Um, and talking to your child about it. I mean, a visual tool can be, you write three steps on a dry and erase board of what they need to do after school. And they cross off each one. When they cross off all three, they earn this snack or this, this mm -hmm. activity, you know, keeping it very simple. Um, talking to them about what they think they should do, what should the plan be, what should their schedule look like, what could they earn. Um, another thing I do with students, regardless of their age, is I use first then language. Mm. And so it sounds really simple, but um, it really breaks it down. This is what you need to do first, the usually the thing you don't wanna do. And then the then is this is what you get to earn or get to do next, which is usually more exciting because you did the first thing. And it can be used for children, you know, three um, through college age of, you know, we, and we kind of even do it for ourselves. You know, if we have to write an email, we don't want to, or we have to work on a, you know, a project for work and we're not, we're not excited about it. We may do our first then for ourselves. I'm going to first work on this project, then I'm going to watch my show. Mm -hmm. um, so we're even doing that as adults. And so if we can model that for kids and, and use that language, first you need to do this, then you need to do this. Uh, or then you can do this, um, can really uh, be a powerful tool. Like I said, it sounds simple, but it can really break down what, um, what a child clearly needs, which is usually they just don't understand the expectations that are given. Yeah. Um, so visuals, first thens. Um, I would also, um, if your child has a hard time with organization, um, the sooner you can incorporate like a system that they buy into, whether it's using one binder or that accordion folder, um, having them use planners or calendars and understand what that means. Um, you know, every, most schools, you get this calendar every year at your school and you're like, okay, some kids never open it, um, <laughs> you know, which is, which is fine. But I, sometimes they don't open it because they don't know how to use it. Yeah. Uh, and that needs to be explicitly taught. Sometimes they think these, um, skills like organizing and monitoring are, are what we're doing and our task completion and, you know, planning is all something we're supposed to just absorb by being at school. But for a lot of kids, it needs to be explicitly taught. Um, so I think really just looking at um, what do they need help with and teaching it to them step by step, giving them the opportunity to practice and then immediately reinforcing it when they do having a party when they, you know, pick up all their belongings before they go upstairs, um, you know, really celebrating um, when they've chosen to use strategies that you've shared with them. Absolutely. Well, and I think that all I, ah, yes, like when they've chosen to use strategies that you've taught them. Yes, absolutely. Well, and it all kind of goes down to, well, and what it all kind of comes down to like empowering students with 
with these strategies and with the skills that you know that we're trying to teach them can you can you share what should what should people know about empowering their students well i think that empowering comes from giving information right when we have information we um we feel confident and we feel like we can solve problems that we maybe didn't feel like we could before and so you know what that means in my practice is that you know when i'm assessing a child um and and i have the assessment results i want to not only go over it with the parents i want to go over it with the child too mm. um and let them know like these are your strengths and areas of concern i use language appropriate for their age level um and you know i think it's when you when a child has a diagnosis it's it, the whole family needs to be a part of it and the whole family needs to understand and um you know the sooner the information is out there the sooner the child can learn strategies and the family can learn how to support them um because you know if you have a child with adhd or autism or with a learning disability you know how challenging these executive functioning strategies can be for them and the sooner you talk about it and talk about their strengths and weaknesses because there's so many strengths that come with every child um and then helping them be able to learn strategies and, and giving them those strategies um that's what's really empowering because then they can advocate for what they need um, and a lot of times we mistakenly as parents advocate on our child's behalf, but we do it to the extent that they don't know how to do it for themselves. Um, and so when they go to high school or college, they're kind of frozen because they don't know what to do because they've never had to do it before. Um, so I think empowering a child, having them be a part of the diagnostic process, understand their profile, understand to ask for what they need and how to advocate is really going to make everything we do in an assessment all of our recommendations and interventions come alive in their life yeah absolutely oh my gosh absolutely i mean yes i mean amen <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well so my next question here is can you well yeah so my next question here and i there's a question in the chat box i think i'm gonna i think we're gonna partial answer it so i'm gonna ask you one of my questions and then i'm gonna go to a, a chat box question is um can you share a little bit about just about assessments and your services yes absolutely so like i mentioned before at the beginning i'm a licensed educational psychologist so what i do is um, psychoeducational evaluations primarily which means i'm looking at if you've ever had a child with an IEP, it's in the school setting, it's usually the assessment that the school psychologist does. Mm -hmm. So in the private setting, it's, um, you know, I have a school psychologist background, but I have my license to do this privately and to diagnose, which is what's really great about the assessments as well, because a lot of times when you're looking at the cognitive ability of a child, how they think and the academics and you make those connections, um, with why things are, why they're, why they have strengths in certain areas and why they have weaknesses in certain areas. And then you, um, add in the social emotional piece, which is very important. You can connect a lot of dots and put together kind of this puzzle that makes sense. Um, and so with these, um, assessments, what can also come as a diagnosis, which can sometimes lead to support, um, families might get through, um, you know, services, um, whether it's through something like Club Excite or through an insurance if they need ABA services or something like that. Um, what's also really helpful is the recommendations that I give that are, you know, 
specific and strategic. I'm not going to give you a laundry list of, ex of interventions and recommendations because I want them to be meaningful. Um, and um, what comes from that also is I do counseling with students as well. And so um, I use a lot of what we call cognitive behavior therapy or CBT is a common name. Um, and so I work with students on um, using strategies to help them self-regulate, help them with their anxiety, help them with um, you know, social skills and um, different strategies they need to function throughout their day. Um, so that's a piece I, I absolutely love doing. I love working with kids and I love the counseling process as well. Um, and then another part I do is I do consultation with parents. And that is another part that I've really enjoyed because, um, you know, if your child is struggling in school and um, the school hasn't identified a need or you're having trouble getting your child tested, um, especially, you know, right now with the standstill of a lot of assessments um, and knowing that the fall is probably going to be very busy for schools, mm -hmm. um, parents are taking this opportunity um, over summer to pursue assessment so they can come into the fall with information to provide to their school, provide for themselves. Um, you know, especially I think a lot of parents have been seeing how their child performs with this at-home learning experience and kind of probably understanding their child academically a little bit more, mm -hmm. um, you know, whether, you know, that is a confirming some things that they knew or maybe bringing new things that they didn't know about their child and their child's reading, writing, and math skills that now they maybe have concerns about. Um, so I help parents kind of know how to navigate the school system because I was a, I've been a part of it for so long, um, helping them understand IEPs, which is an individual education plan, which is that special education piece, but also something called 504s, which is a plan in general education where a child might need accommodations like extra time, um, I do assessments that can be used for accommodations for the ACT, SAT, or university level accommodations um, that um, universities often require a, a relevant and recent assessment. Um, so I do a lot of different things. Um, and what's really great right now with summer and knowing that this summer is probably going to be a time parents want to pursue assessment, um, I'm offering 20% off my assessments and then 30% off my counseling packages as well. Um, to try to help, you know, I know that a lot of parents are probably going through financial changes. So I'm trying to be, um, you know, accommodating to that and, and wanting to help where I can. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's a little bit about our services. And um, my office is located in Carmel Valley as well, if you wanted that location information. <laughs> awesome. Fabulous. Well, and that, ah, well, and that actually really connects. I, I knew this was going to happen. We, we half answered the question and I'm going to go into the next one and answer the other side of it is, um, so we have a question in the chat box. And in fact, this actually to everyone who is here, if you had a question, uh, we are kind of coming towards the end here. So now would be a great time to uh, enter a question to the chat box. Uh, but we have a question here and it says, um, so when talking about school assessments and correlating it to academic testing, uh, how do you determine if it is a learning disability or just a weakness? It's a great question. So, you know, as a um, diagnostician or a psychologist, I'm looking for um, a certain level of um, deficit or a certain level, a certain gap in between a child's cognitive performance um, and an academic area, and then a reason for it, like a processing um, deficit. So sometimes, um, you know, children have, we all have strengths and weaknesses. We all have profiles that kind of go like this. 
-hmm. Nobody has a profile where everything is the same score and everything is the same performance level. Um, so we all have areas where we might dip a little bit and then, um, you know, there's a level that's significant. And so that's why the scoring piece of assessment is important because I look at what are the scores? Um, what is the child's, you know, average ability and where are um, these weaknesses and how much, how discrepant are these weaknesses from their overall um, average abilities in cognitive um, uh, and academics. And so if there's a significant gap and there's a processing deficit that's the reason for the gap, um, then we're looking at a learning disability. Mm. Um, and I do have specific tools that look at that. I have a specific assessment that looks at different types of dyslexia because there are, there is more, there's more than one type. Um, there's three types, which is for another, another time. But, um, you know, I think, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of data that comes from assessments that can absolutely be used to determine, is it a weakness or is it a true disability? Absolutely. Absolutely. Ooh, I love it. I, <laughs> well, and I'm looking through the chat box here. There aren't any new questions and I do believe we've addressed them all. So, my last question to you is how, and well, and you shared a little bit about this before, but my last question for you is how can people reach you? Great question. <laughs> so there's a few ways. Um, I have a website, which is empoweredchildlearning.com. Um, and then also, um, like I mentioned, my office is located in Carmel Valley and um, email is empoweredchildlearning at gmail.com, nice and easy. And then uh, what's also great and a reason you should check, my, check out the website um, is you can sign up there for my newsletter, get information on free events. Um, I do monthly webinars on different topics. I just did one actually on Thursday on ADHD and that's available for replay if you want to kind of see how I talk about executive functioning, not quite as in detail as I did tonight, but um, and talking, and my previous webinar was about anxiety. Um, and I have a couple more on the books that are coming up as well. So um, if you want to get more of a, a flavor for how I um, speak about different areas of uh, my expertise, like I mentioned, um, I, I specialize in ADHD, dyslexia, um, autism, and anxiety. So those are kind of my areas of um, specialty. So um, you're welcome to check those out, sign up for the newsletter to get information which is on my website. And then I also do um, free uh, consultations and I, and I give up to 60 minutes for that free consultation because I really wanna get to know the family and the child and what exactly they need so that we can come up with a plan together um, so parents understand what my services are and what would be my recommendation if they were to pursue those services. Oh, fabulous. Fabulous. Oh, I'm so, Meredith, I'm so glad we got the opportunity to talk. I'm just, I'm just so stoked. There is a, so there's two questions in the chat box. They're little questions. Okay. Um, so the first question is, and it says, uh, will this recording be available later? And the answer to that is yes. So this recording will be available later. The places you can look out for it are, uh, if you are already on Club Excite's email newsletter, Jocelyn Burke will be sending out as early as tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, depending on how long it takes to upload. <laughs> but tomorrow uh, in our email newsletter, there'll be a link to it. You can also find it on Club Excite has a YouTube. We upload these recordings to YouTube. And I'm actually very excited to announce that we 
Club Excite is also having a, we're opening a podcast and it's still this, it's this content right here that you're learning that we're participating in right now. So we're taking all of these uh, webinars and interviews that we do and converting them to podcast format. So which will be available on Spotify starting on June 15th. Um, and the very, very last question is, will dyslexia be an upcoming webinar? For Meredith. Ooh, you are so smart, whoever asked that question. <laughs> You're planning executive functioning skill. Um, yes, because I'm kind of going through my specialties. Um, and so I'm going to be doing one on dyslexia and I'm going to be doing one on autism. Those are my next to do's. Um, I, um, if you sign up for my newsletter, you'll find out when exactly that is. I don't have a date yet, but it will be um, in the next um, month or two for sure. Fabulous. I'm fabulous. really excited to talk about that one. That's one of my other <laughs> passions. <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much, everyone. One last just comment out to everyone. Thank you so much, Meredith, for joining us. Oh, and also, fabulous. yes, of course. Well, and everyone, uh, as well, and as you already know, you know, we are, uh, I'm coming from Club Excite. So just a little quick blurb about what Club Excite does. Club Excite offers one-to-one -one and group setting, tutoring, coaching, mentoring, and licensed professional therapy. And the summer, we're also, if you're, well, especially in the summer, something that I'm really excited about that we're doing, in addition to all of our one-to-one -one and group programs, we're also having virtual summer camps. So we have an in-person summer camp planned for July for people who are comfortable with that, but we also know that not everyone is, so we also have virtual summer camps as well. So please feel free to reach out to Club Excite if you have any questions about that. Um, but with that being said, I think that it, I think that is the whole enchilada, Meredith. We covered so much information. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Thank you for joining us. Well, and thank you everyone who joined us today. I, this was such a great talk. I loved it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you have any questions about Club Excite and the different ways that we could potentially serve your student, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. You can call us at area code 858-779-9674. You can send us an email to contact at exciteway.com, C-O-N-T-A-C-T at E-X-C-I-T-E way.com. You can also find us on social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram. And you can also visit our website, clubexcite.com. C-L-U-B-X-C-I-T-E.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.